Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Years ago, the late W.A. Crystal, pastor, longtime pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas, was asked what he would do differently if he could start his ministry over. He said, I'd preach the Bible. I'd preach the Bible. I'd go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If there wasn't a sermon there, I'd look to verse 2. If there wasn't a sermon in verse 1 and verse 2, I'd preach all of Genesis chapter 1. If there wasn't a sermon in Genesis chapter 1, I'd preach all of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. If there wasn't a sermon there, I'd preach all of the book of Genesis. I'd preach every verse of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's what I do differently. We've been going through the book of Hosea. Some of you might say, man, I wish he'd hurry up and get through the book of Hosea. Some of you will probably say are really enjoying it and you're learning some new insights that you had never uh, heard before. Uh, But, you know, regardless of where you stand, I determined uh, last year that I was going to preach through the book of Hosea chapter by chapter, thought by thought, idea by idea. Not verse, maybe not verse by verse, but thought by thought, phrase by phrase, idea by idea. We've been looking at it under the heading, God's amazing you're probably wondering when we're going to get to that love part. It's throughout the chapters. Uh, just God's patience, his, his, his endurance with the people. We started out in chapters 1 through 3, and, and we just saw how Hosea's marriage to Gomer was a reflection of God's relationship to the people of Israel. His life, his marriage was a living parable, an illustration of God's relationship with the children of Israel. And then we, we began looking at chapters 4 on through chapter 6, looking at the specific problems that Israel had in understanding who they were as the people of God. Now we pick it up in chapter 7 of of Hosea. So go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 7 of Hosea. As you're turning there, we we know that Jesus taught in the New Testament, that he told his disciples, you are to be in the world, but you are not of the world. You are to be a part of this world, but you're not of it. You're not really there. You're just passing through. And so so we, in keeping with that theme, we'll look at Hosea chapter 7. And I think from this we can learn what it looks like when we are in the world. Not, we're in the world and not of the world. There is a difference. So we're going to look at these these words this morning in Hosea chapter 7 under the heading, What Happens? When we are in the world, we'll actually pick it up at the end of verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. We'll pick it up there, or not verse 12, uh, the previous verse, verse 11. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim were exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practiced deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from its kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival, our king, the princes, became inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. 
Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless. Now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me with their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine. They turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened them, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. With this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. What happens when we are in the world? When we are in the world, we become useless. Look at verse 8. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. God accuses Israel of mixing themselves with the other nations, of mixing themselves with those that are around them. And the result is they lost their identity. They lost who they were as a people of God. And he uses a baking term to describe that. I'm not real big on baking, but you ladies probably know that. Uh, you know, not my, my, my inability to bake. That's not what I'm talking about. You probably know a lot more about baking than, than I do. But he uses a baking term to bring it out. He says, Israel is guilty of identifying with those around them. They are a crazy, mixed-up country. But here's the problem. Everything they did, they did it deliberately. They deliberately chose to turn from God and turn to look like the world around them. God never intended Israel to look anything like the nations around them. They were to be unique. They were to be special. They were supposed to be something set apart from the others. But they chose not to identify with God. And as a result, they chose to identify with all the nations around them. Now, the Bible calls it idolatry. Hosea probably calls it adultery or prostitution. This is what he's saying. They have turned from me. In, verses, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 7, we see this idea. Everything you see going on in that passage, it, it talks about the politics have been taken out of God's hands. The highlight of this passage, or the context of this passage, is 2 Kings chapter 15, where the nation of Israel kills one king after another. Those four kings are assassinated in, in order. But they never consult God about who to place on the throne. They never talk to God about who should replace this person. Instead, they just, at their own power, at their own volition, they just kill everybody and put their own puppet dictator, put their own king up on there. Their basic idea is that it's none of God's business what goes on in the political realm because that's not God's concern. They said, we will make our decision. We will determine who we want to lead us, and God has no say in that matter. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a sermon on politics. Uh, I try not to do that. But let me tell you something, my friends. Your relationship with God better determine your politics. 
your relationship with God, we need to judge and we need to decide who sets as president, who sets as senators, who sets as mayors based on God's book, not some political platform. We need to base it up on that. And if you're not judging your political decisions by this God's word, guess what? You're not much different than Israel. Israel said, God's not concerned in the political realm. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Because Israel chose to leave God out of the process, Israel becomes useless. Verse 8, he says, Ephraim is a flat cake not turned over. <laughs> I like pancakes. Y'all like pancakes? Anybody else like pancakes? I like them with blueberries in them. Uh, but I like regular pancakes. And You ever had a pancake that fart on one side and gooey on the other side? What do you do with it? You throw it in the trash. That's what he's saying. He says, Israel, you're just like a burnt pancake. On burn the crisp on one side and gooey on the other side. You throw them out. They're not good for anything whatsoever. Hosea says, God had a purpose for you, Israel. God had a purpose for you. You were to be unique. You were to be special. You were to be used by me to bring people into a love relationship with God. That's what you were supposed to do. But you've denied that. You've rejected that. So you're no longer a part of that. Verse 9, it paints a dismal picture. It says, foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is pinked with gray, but he does not notice. Here's the charge. It's a slow decay of which they are unaware of. They're aligning themselves with strangers. Even if the people wanted to be used by God, they could not because their power was gone. Then he uses this analogy of gray hair. This must have been before Grecian formula, or this must have been before that, that hair color stuff, or even maybe before they had mirrors. He said, you didn't realize that you had gray hair. I resemble that remark. Before I had teenagers, I had a head full of black hair. Before I pastor a church, I had black hair. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? He woke up one morning, where does gray hair come from? Where did it come from? Perhaps one of the saddest passages in the Bible is Judges chapter 16. It's talking about Judges chapter 16, verse 20, talking about Samson. It said he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. This is what was going on with the nation of Israel. They did not know that God had left them. They did not know that God had abandoned them. One of the saddest verses. In the Bible, the nation of Israel is the same way. How did it happen? How did they, they leave this, the presence of God? How did, they, how, did they, how did God leave them? Usually a person does not plunge into moral and spiritual decay uh, with, with a single temptation. It's, it's, it's a process that takes place. It's a progressive decaying. And as small segments of life begin to give away to the ways of the world and begin giving away to the things that lure them and the things that tempt them, and before long, their whole body is decayed. Zig Ziglar, motivational speaker, uh, several years ago, wrote a book called See You at the Top. I read the book years ago in my, uh, my, in my bachelor's program. Uh, and in the, in the book, he talks about a giant sequoia tree in Colorado. He said it's massive. He said, but it's lying decaying in the forest. He said, what happened? He said, when, it, when Christ walked upon the earth, it was a sapling. He said, during the American Revolution, it grew to the greatest heights and reached its maturity and gave all this 
growth. And he said it peered from the heights of its maturity during the times of the Civil War. He said, but then one day a beetle came into the tree and laid eggs. At first, he said, it seemed like an insurmountable task. A little beetle against a giant sequoia tree. But over time, that beetle, those beetles laid more eggs and hundreds became thousands and thousands, thousands became millions. And they began attacking the bark of the outer side of the sequoia and then they drove into the meat of the tree and eventually into the core of the tree. And then over time, the winds came and the storms blew and the roots gave way and the mighty tree fell. But it didn't fall because of age. It fell because of internal rot that got into it from an outside source. It's the same way with our Christian lives, my friends. It's the same way with us. We allow things to get into our life. We allow things to get into our hearts. And eventually it causes us to fall. Bad habits do that to us. They take a toll on us until the day when the man, like that tree, falls to the ground. We are no different today. We need to heed the message of Hosea. If we are not careful, we too will become useless in this world where God has placed us. And it will happen slowly. We won't even know what happened. We'll just wake up one morning and say, oh my goodness, how did this happen? When we allow the world to creep into our lives, we find ourselves of the world. Or in the world. Instead of of the world. we begin to lose our effectiveness in the world. We need to make sure that sin does not find a burrowing place in our hearts. That sin doesn't find a burrowing place within our, our morals, our values, our ideology, our doctrines. Because if it does, then we will become useless. Second truth. When we are in the world, we become arrogant. Look at verse 10. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. I looked up this word arrogance in the dictionary. It says arrogance is a high opinion of one's own importance or worth. Arrogance blinds people to their weaknesses and they stagger on the role they have chosen with confidence that they can find their own solution to their problems. And because of their self-importance, it's insulated them from self-examination. They won't look at themselves because they think they're better than everybody else. Renewal depends upon one being honest and looking at himself. Arrogance destroys that. You do not have the ability to look at yourself. You don't want to look at yourself. Years ago, they said pride, arrogance, is one of the seven deadly sins. Pride goes before the fall, is what the passage said. I think a certain degree of arrogance is essential for self-preservation. I'm not totally uh, against it, but, but when that becomes who you are, uh, you know, too much arrogance leads to conceit. So we don't want to do that. Oh, we can be overly proud. We can be self-sufficient for every problem uh, that, that we face. And as a result, we become self-made. We become self-sufficient. We become self-determined. We become wrapped up in ourselves, and therefore we don't need anyone else, least of all to be God. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Bottom line is, because of his arrogance, because of his own self-worth, he did not see any reason 
whatsoever to return to God. He refused to do it. He was wrapped up in his own worth. He said, I, I'm, I'm important. I, I can do this on my own. And Israel, their own importance, they, they, they thought they were so important, they didn't need God. And so they would not respond to God. Arrogance is the main reason that people do not come to God. Their arrogance refuses to believe that there might be something wrong with them. And so they refuse to listen to the truth. And arrogance has driven a wedge between God and man because they just cannot get the fact that they might not be good enough. Mark Twain told a story one time of, a, of an arrogant businessman who said his goal in life was to go to the Holy Land. And he said, I want to stand on Mount Sinai and I want to, I want to recite the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill! Thou shalt not commit adultery! Thou shalt honor your mother and your father! Mark Twain interrupted him and said, Have you ever thought about just staying here and living them? You see what arrogance does? Arrogance condemns others, but it doesn't condemn yourself. Arrogance looks at the faults of others, but it does not look at the fault of themselves. Arrogance puts yourself up on a pedestal. Everybody else has a problem. I don't have one. Arrogance condemns others. Arrogance refuses to admit that they might be wrong. As a matter of fact, arrogance allows you to sit in a Bible study class, to sit and listen to a sermon and say, you know, so-and-so needed to hear that. That's arrogance. Arrogance. Arrogance refuses to believe that we might benefit from others. We can't learn anything new because we already know it all. We shout at others, but not to ourselves. Remember what Jesus said? He said, man, before you go and you condemn others, before you go and pass judgment on others and Try to move that little speck of sawdust. And die. Make sure you get that telephone pole out of your own eye first. He said, then when you do that, then you can go make a, a proper assessment of these individuals. You know what? Too many of us, we're not willing to remove the splinter out of our own eye before we pass condemnation on everyone else. And we begin to judge them. We become arrogant. We become arrogant. Arrogance, conceit, and egotism prod us to make a name for ourselves in the headlines of the world. Instead of making an impact for God, instead of making an impact for God's kingdom and God's rule and God's reign in people's lives, we want to set ourselves up our own kingdom and our own rule and our own reign. You see, Christian humility enables us to live life the way God would have us to live. The way God would want us to live. When we are in the world, third truth, when we are in the world, we become our own ruler. Arrogance can be overcome. It can. It takes help. It takes a lot of, lot of effort. But Israel did not want it to happen. It says that they become their own ruler. They want to make their own decisions. Look at verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. He compares them to a dove. A dove going from place to place, looking for some place to land, looking for some place of comfort. And the point is that they had a failure to depend upon God. The prophets had told them time and time again, trust in the Lord, count upon Him, He'll get you through it. But every time they kept going to someplace else, to some other nation, some other deity to find happiness. 
Verse 13, he begins offering this strong language. Look what he says. He says, woe to them. Every time you see that word woe, it's a condemnation of somebody who's already dead. These people are dead. He says, woe to them. It's spoken over those who are doomed to death. Notice what he says. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. He says, they've, they've strayed from me. They, they, made, they made a deliberate choice to walk away from me. They made a deliberate choice to, to turn away from me. And as a result of, of their willingness to stray from him, look at what it says in the next part. Destruction in because they have rebelled against me. Not only have they strayed, they've been, they rebelled against him. They disobeyed him. He said, you're not our God. We're not going to follow you. You haven't done anything for us. Which leads to the third truth of what it says. I long to redeem them. God says, I want to save you, Israel. I want to bring you back. I want to bring you in that relationship with me. What it says. But they speak lies against me. They speak lies. But you never did anything for us. You didn't deliver us. You didn't set us free. We've done this. We built this with our own two hands. We've done it. You never did anything for us. Kind of reminds me of a scene 740 years later when the people cried out, We have no king but Caesar. Because they reject Jesus and they choose Caesar. If we were to continue to read in this passage, we see that this gets worse and worse and worse. The real king, God, is dethroned. And those who would be king scramble to take his seat. Others begin to assume the throne that rightfully belonged to God. Everything and everyone will take the place that belongs to God. Listen. When you take God to the throne, there's always somebody ready to take his place. As one commentator said this, this is what he said, when the big God is gone, all the little gods come. If the little God is not on the throne, that throne is never empty. It is always occupied. And then he makes this statement. He said, whatever occupies its space becomes the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of the desolation? Something sitting in the place that belongs to God. Let me ask you a question. What do you have sitting in your heart? Because that belongs to God. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your life. And if you place anything else upon the throne other than God, that is an abomination of desolation to God. It's something sitting in a place where it does not deserve to be. Something will always claim the right to sit on the throne. We will always make other loyalties secondary when it happens. When we place something else upon the throne, other things become, sec- become secondary. Israel just could not understand this truth. They could not understand that they had supplanted God from being first in their life. And as a result, they were going to be punished. They couldn't get it. And let me tell you something. We as a church and as individuals often take God off the throne. I know you find that hard to believe. Oh, I can't believe a preacher... We would actually say that after all, we're here. We're here. Remember, we talked about that last week. Mistaking presence for purpose. Just being present. Say, I'm here. Okay, what are you here to do? You're here to serve me. 
You're here to obey me. You're here to follow me. We take God off the throne. We put something else as our God. We make God secondary in our lives. And I can speak of this, folks. I have experience in this area because I was one of those individuals who put God secondary in my life. So, I, so, so I'm speaking from experience. But, but I don't have to speak from my own experience. Statistics bear it out. Truth bears it out. 40% of our members are here on a given Sunday. Where are the other 60%? Where are they at? I'm talking about every Sunday. 40% are here. But if we go and look at what happens on Sunday night and Wednesday night, it drops down to 15% of our people. And most of them are children and youth. You know, ch churches for children and youth, right? It's not for adults. Oh, quite contraire. But then it gets worse. If you come Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, oh, did y'all know there's an 8 o'clock in the morning? You come to Saturday at 8 o'clock in the morning when we are, we, we're supposed to be the power plant for the church. The power source, prayer, seeking unity with God, seeking communion with God, and praying for His church. It drops down to 2%. 2%. And you ask me, preacher, how do you know? How do you know that there's so much of the world in the church? Statistics bear the truth. Statistics bear the truth. I had a revelation. Ooh, I better be careful. Can I say that? God revealed something to me in prayer. You know, that's a neat thing about prayer, Brother Mitchell. As you sit there and you listen to everybody pray, God speaks to you, man. I'm telling you, God speaks to your heart. You know, you're, you're, sitting there, you're echoing everything in prayer, and all of a sudden God reveals something to you. God revealed a story that He told in the book of Luke. We talked about this several weeks ago. This is not in my manuscript, but this is free. But I thought since it was so good that God revealed it to me, I ought to share it with y'all. You know, a good revelation should be kept secret. Kind of like you know, Jesus died on the cross. We ought to tell people about it because it's pretty good news. God revealed the story of a, in, in the book of Luke. Jesus told the story of a man who planned a banquet. And he sent out invitations. He sent out all these invitations to all these people. And the point was, in those days, you planned the banquet around the people that are going to come. Because you've got to plan how much wine do you need, how much food do you need, how many, you know, how many plates do you need to set, you know, how many settings do you need to have. And so plan it. So they RSVP, yeah, hey, we're coming, we're coming. This is a wealthy man. And so they were all coming. This would have been the talk of the town to be a part of this party. And so on the day of the banquet, on the day of the party, all the banks say, oh, we're not going to come. You know, something better came up. You know, we're going to the lake. Um, we're going to the golf course. We're going to the beach. I'll be there next week, by the way. Uh, you know, we're going to all these places. And he says, so we're not going to come. And so the guy says, what am I going to do? I've got all this food. I've got an entertainment plan. What am I going to do? And he does an interesting thing. He says, go out into the highways and byways and bring in the strangers, bring in the aliens, bring in the rejects. Why? So that my house may be filled. Here's what God told me. Be prepared. We would no longer make decisions in our church to bring the 60% back. 
They've been invited. They've been invited. God says, go out to the highways and the byways and bring people in that my house may be filled. I feel better. It takes a lot of pressure off of me. Instead of saying, preacher, how are we going to get these people back? I said, how are we going to get others come? Why? Because Jesus came to seek and save those that were lost. People are invited. They know we have worship here at 845 and we have worship at 1115. If they're a part of this body of believers, 400 people, and they don't know that by now, guess what? They're never going to know it. If we can do all these nifty, creative little things to try to attract the, to attract the sheep when we need to be going out and reaching the lost. The highways and the byways to the derelicts and the rejects of society and bring them in. Why? So that His house may be filled. It's not our house. It's His house. We just see that just a little too much of the world in us that we don't quite get that. Just as Israel had to learn this lesson, we as a church have got to be doing it as well. We need to learn a valuable lesson. This is one of the reasons we study the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons we study history is so that we we can learn from them what not to do today. What was the problem of Israel? What was the problem of the people of Hosea? The people of Hosea during that time, the people that Hosea preached to, they had no knowledge of God. No knowledge of God. We can see where Israel failed. And because we can see where Israel failed, we can learn from them what not to do and what we should do. It's time to put God back in control of our lives. It's time to put God back in control of our church. And when we do that, when we put God in control, listen, we will have the dramatic influence in this community. But God will also have a dramatic influence in our lives. And we will be the church that God deserves to have. Not the one that we want. Be the one that God deserves. But you see, when we're in the world, and we look so much like the world, we become useless. We become arrogant. And we become our own ruler. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. We're not going to belabor the point. We're not going to drag it out over a long period of time. But we want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. Jeremy's going to come. Cassie's going to come. They're going to play. Lead us in an invitation song. Josh is going to come forward. Marcia will make her way down. We'll be standing here at the front. You know, we're just here to facilitate conversation. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. Maybe you want to talk with somebody. Maybe you want to receive some godly advice. Hopefully we can give you that. But I'll tell you one thing we can do is we can pray for you. We're not going to solve any problems. God's the problem solver, not me. We can pray for you. Maybe you need to say, I need to know how to be a part of this church. You know how to, I, I, I want to make Jesus. I want to make God first in my life. We can tell you how to do that. Would you stand with me? As I lead us in a time of prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. We pray now, Father, that you would speak to our hearts during this time. Communicate to us, Father, the truth that you would have us to know. God, I don't think there's anyone in this room that really, Father, wants to take you off their throne. Well, we do it by accident. We don't mean to, Father, but 
we get so wrapped up in the world around us, we get so wrapped up, Father, in things going on and jobs and families and careers and activity, God, that we just don't make time for you. God, we ask you to forgive us for that. God, we ask that you forgive us. Well, we don't want to be of the world. We can be in the world. But Father, we want our hearts to be in heaven. That's our home. And God, we're just passing through this earth where you placed us. Touch hearts this morning, Father. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.